Good morning. Let me get set up here. So welcome to our church this morning. Welcome to those of you who are online and those of you who are here in the room with us. We're continuing our sermon series in the Old Testament prophets. And this is part of a series that we began five years ago in looking at the Old Testament and journeying through the story of God and his people in the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, Brandon introduced this part of the series in the Old Testament prophets and told us that God spoke through the prophets to Israel, his people, at a time when Israel was going astray. And the prophets called Israel to love and obey God, to turn from their sin, to repent, and to turn back to God. Last week, Pastor Eric talked about the sin of idolatry and worshiping false gods, that worship matters and that we are so tempted to worship other things, but we truly need to worship only God alone. And today we're going to look at the sin of injustice. And before I get into the meat of the message, I want to do a little exercise with you. And don't worry, nothing weird. You don't have to embarrass yourselves. But just hold your hands in front of you and clench your fists. Feel how it feels in your hands, your arms. If you clench your fists really hard, and you don't have to do that, but you might feel it in your body, in your jaw, in your face. And this is the posture of defensiveness, resistance, anger. Now release your hands, just hold your palms out in front of you, and you feel your body relax. This is the posture of openness, of being open to new ideas, of listening and receiving. And this is the posture we should have whenever we hear God's word. Open hands, but also open mind and heart mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And you can put your hands down now, but have that posture as we hear God's word. Injustice, social justice, justice, they're kind of hot topics today, and they can be loaded emotionally for some of us. And I hope you'll have an open heart, an open mind, as we look at what God's word says to Israel. And whether you think everybody should just get on board with social justice, whether you're impatient with people or whether you just think it's overdone and you don't want to hear it anymore. I hope you'll be open today to what God's word says to Israel and maybe to us as well. As Brandon told us two weeks ago when he introduced this sermon series, the prophets spoke for the heart of God. And God's heart is for justice. God's heart is for us to treat other people well, fairly, with mercy and compassion. God's nature is just. It's who he is. And the very idea of righteousness and being in a right relationship with God includes the idea of justice and treating other people well, being in a right relationship with other people. Being a Christian is not just about you and God. It's about you in a social context. And Jesus said that, right? Love God and love others. The Hebrew word for righteousness, tzedek, also includes the idea of justice. And in God's eyes, righteousness and justice go together. You cannot be right with God without also doing right with other people. 
And from the moment sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, how we treat other people became a problem. Adam and Eve set the stage for the blame game, blaming other people. It's her fault. It's his fault. And looking out for number one, Cain killed his brother Abel because his offering was better. Jacob cheated his brother out of their father's blessing. Joseph boasted to his 11 brothers about how he was going to someday rule over them, and they threw him in a pit and sold him to slave traders. When sin entered the world, people began living for themselves and justice, doing what's right, caring about the needs of others, became rare. So when God chose Israel to be his people, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the land and made them into a nation. God set out rules for fairness, equity, and how to treat other people. If they were going to flourish and prosper as God's people, as his nation, his covenant people, they had to value justice, to act justly, to do what's right with other people. And the law established that from the very beginning. The Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20, and they spell out how to love God and how to love others. And then immediately following that, it says, God says to Moses, these are the laws you would have set before them, and then presents rules about how to do justice and act justly with servants, with personal injuries, personal property, and people in need. For example, in Exodus 22, there are rules about what's fair if you're taking care of your neighbor's ox or donkey and something happens to it. And that's a little like if you're house-sitting for someone and something happens to their pet. And a long time ago, I was house-sitting for a friend and she told me to make sure the cat comes in at night. And this was hugely stressful for me because I'm not a cat person. I've always had dogs. You want the dog to come in at night, you open the door. The dog is in the yard, it comes running, sometimes you have to call it, but it's there. Cats are different, right? They're not even in the yard. You open the door and you don't know what's gonna happen. And I didn't know, I should have asked these questions before my friend left, but do you open the door and wait for the cat to come? Do you call it by name? Do you go out and look for it? Wander the streets and hope the cat will come? It was hugely stressful for me every night hoping that that cat would be there. But Exodus 22 tells you what you should do if something happens to the ox or the donkey or the cat. If the cat didn't come in at night and something happened to it, my friend might sue me or humiliate me on social media. But Exodus says that if the cat died, I should take an oath that I did not lay hands on it, and then I'm not at fault. I'm not to blame, and I don't have to pay for that cat. If I stole the cat and it died, then I do have to pay for it. And if the cat is torn apart by wild animals, I have to show the remains, and then I don't have to pay for it. And all that is stipulated in the law so that we can settle the issue fairly and maybe remain friends even though I was a terrible house sitter. The laws showed justice so that people could live together. And God is a God of justice. Some of the laws seem silly to us today. And we don't have to follow the laws because of Jesus. But the law made clear that social justice matters. 
that in order for people to live together, they have to have law. They have to act justly. And God is not really so concerned about oxen or donkey or cats, especially cats. Sorry, cat people. But God is concerned with people, not so much with animals. God is concerned with people, and especially people who have less power, less status or standing in society, less means of support. And Israel was founded on social justice, fairness, mercy, and compassion for those in need. Exodus 22, 21 to 27 spells this out and says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear them cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. That's pretty harsh. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business, business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God is a God of justice and compassion for people in need. And remember that part about pledges and cloaks, because we're going to see that again. But Moses repeats these instructions later in the book of Deuteronomy, just before they enter the promised land. Because God wants Israel to value justice and to treat people well as they become a nation. And social justice, social responsibility, fair practices, mercy and compassion are at the heart of who God is and who he wants his people to be. But looking out for number one is a powerful draw. And sin and self-centered behavior draw all of us to care less about other people, people different from us, people in need. We want justice for us. And sometimes we are the people who need justice. We would protect what's ours but we care a little less. We rationalize injustice toward other people, people outside our group, people who are different from us. And over and over, the prophets address God's call for Israel to turn to him, to turn from the sin of injustice, and to care about people in need. Here's a small sample of what the prophets said in Isaiah 1, verses 16 to 17. And this is the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And you see there where right and justice are almost synonymous. In God's eyes, righteousness and being right with him is the same as justice. Zechariah 7, verses 9 to 10. And in this passage, notice that there are four groups of people that are mentioned. And we'll see this part again also. Zechariah 7, 9 to 10 says, This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Micah 6, 8. And this is a well-known verse at the end of Micah's prophecy, summarizing his message. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
and then Amos 5, verses 23 to 24. And if this sounds familiar, it's from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. And that famous verse was quoted often by Martin Luther King Jr. and many others. It's from the book of Amos. And Amos was known as the prophet of social justice long before social justice was an issue. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time in the book of Amos, looking at his message. The book of Amos starts with judgments against six neighboring nations. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can kind of glance through it. I'm not gonna read all of them. But there's a poetic formula in each of these judgments, and they all begin, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. And this just means there's a lot of sin, not just three or four, there's a lot of sin, and God is gonna judge. And in chapter one, God proceeds to condemn six neighboring nations around Israel. They're all enemies. They're all condemned for their atrocities and cruelties toward other people. And each time as Israel's listening to this prophecy, they probably say a hearty yes, those people deserve judgment. They're evil, they're bad. But then the prophecies in chapter two starts to zero in on Judah and then Israel. And this is a judgment against Israel. It starts in Amos 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet, I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. God is hopping mad. God is full of wrath. And if some of these sins sound gross and disgusting, they are. And God is grossed out and disgusted with Israel and their behavior. With their behavior, but also, maybe even more, with their attitude of complacency, taking advantage of the poor, treating them as less than human. Verse 6 says, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And that's slave trading. They sold people into slavery if they couldn't pay. Verse 7 says, they trample on the heads of the poor and deny justice to the oppressed. And this refers to corrupt business practices, bribery, inflated prices, crooked weights and measures, 
dishonest and ruthless judges. Verse 7 continues, Father and son used the same girl and so profaned my holy name. And there was sexual abuse of slave girls in the household. Verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And as we just saw in Exodus 22, the law specifically says to be compassionate towards people, to not take pledges, to not keep their cloak. And Israel did not obey the law. They neglected fair and compassionate treatment of those in need. And we can infer the situation in Israel in the time of Amos, because Amos says he's speaking in chapter 1, verse 1, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam was king of Israel. And in other places, we know that Uzziah and Jeroboam were kings for a long time, 40 to 50 years. And these were long kingly reigns when there was peace. They had national strength and there was prosperity. And people amassed wealth. And then they needed more money to protect their wealth and to have more things. They had big houses, many houses. They had lush vineyards and they trampled on the heads of the poor. And God was angry. And through Amos, he says in, in chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. And the cows of Bashan are the luxury-loving women. You can think of the TV Real Housewives. Bashan was a city in Israel, and these are the Real Housewives of Bashan. And it's a hedonistic picture that Amos paints of the lifestyle in Israel. It's not hard for us to imagine, because like today, there are people who are wealthy who don't care about others, who are blind to the needs of the poor, who are comfortable and complacent. And while some bask in luxury, others struggled to survive. And it's easy to condemn Israel and to compare them to the super rich today. But it should also sting a little bit. Because we live in the comfort of big houses compared to most people in the world and we pursue the latest foodie trends when other people are hungry. And we do care about poverty and hunger, but we often look away. We care about the homeless, but we also kind of want them to remove those tents so it doesn't, it doesn't bother us and our safety and our comfort. We're concerned about the poor, but we also want to enjoy what we have without feeling guilty about them. And it is not a sin to have a big house or to have money. And I don't really want to guilt you. That's not my point at all. So don't take that away. It's not a sin to have a big house or lots of money. But I just want to point out that our situation is not so far removed from the situation in Israel. And we should pay attention to what the prophets say. We should be moved maybe to good guilt to repentance, and to asking God what his will is for us. In verses 9 to 10, God changes the subject. 
it almost looks like he's going off on a tangent and talking about something completely different, and he talks about destroying the Amorites in the middle of chapter two's diatribe against Israel. God reminds them of their past. In verses 9 to 10, he says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and the roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. And God wants them and us to remember who he is and what he's done. He reminds them of the relationship they have with him as his covenant people. They didn't earn their comfort and security. All that they had was from God. They used to be the poor, needy slaves oppressed in Egypt. And it was God who took compassion on them. God who brought them into the land, gave them victory, gave them the land made them a nation, blessed them, and provided for them. Everything they had was from God. They were the recipients of God's grace and mercy and compassion as his covenant people. And God's wrath at Israel was because they were his covenant people. They had received the law, but they did not honor God's instruction. They did not honor God's heart for justice. They'd received the love and blessing of a relationship with God, but they, they did not love and bless the people around them. They disregarded the law, the covenant relationship, and the heart of God for justice. And what was their response to Amos and the prophets? In Amos 7, verse 10, we can see their response through the priest, Amaziah. Amos 7, uh, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. And verse 12, then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do, not, and do your prophesying there. Amaziah was a priest in Bethel. He was one of the religious leaders in Bethel. And Bethel was a sacred place where Abraham and Jacob had once built altars commemorating the provision of God. It was a home of priests, but Bethel had become a center of idolatry. And the priests went through the motions. They received offerings and sacrifices for many gods and demanded more, and they accumulated wealth and became comfortable themselves. Even the religious, the priests, became comfortable and complacent. And they didn't want to change. They didn't want to hear what Amos had to say. They didn't want their comfortable lives to be ruined. And that's how the religious in Israel responded to the prophets. How do we respond? Micah 6.8 says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How do we apply the warnings of the prophets to us today? We can respond like the religious priests, and we can think, I don't want to hear it. That's not for us today. And don't talk about that here in church. That doesn't belong here. 
And we can resist correction and conviction. We can respond with clenched fists and say, no, that's not for us. Or we can respond with open hands, open hearts, open minds, and ask, God, how do you want me to do justice today? And that's a tough question. The church has struggled with that, with that throughout history, beginning with the early church, the various beginning, as they neglected the Hellenistic widows in the daily distribution of food in Acts 6. The 12 disciples, the Apostle Paul, James, Jesus, they all talked about justice and how the church needs to respond to people in need, to people who are different. And as we've seen, scripture mentions four groups of people who are in need, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. Those were the marginalized people in Israel, people without means of support, without power, without status. So we have to ask ourselves today, who are the equivalent of these four groups today? Who are the marginalized people today? And what does God call us to do about it? And those are tough questions. I challenge you to wrestle with that for yourself. Maybe you'll think about people you know, people, your classmates, your coworkers, who are in need of justice. Maybe you'll think about groups of people in our culture and society today. Who comes to mind for you? Who are the marginalized today? And what does God call us to do about it? When I think about this, I think about Olive Crest. And I think that maybe the equivalent of widows and orphans today might be the single moms, the foster kids, the families in crisis that Olive Crest serves. But who comes to mind for you? My guess is that most of us care about justice and care about people in need. We understand that we are to love God and love others especially those in need. Being in a right relationship with God includes the idea of justice, of caring for others. And you cannot be right with God without also doing right with people. And I think most of us want to act justly. And we want to do better. We wrestle with what to do and how to do it. We're unsure about our own abilities and resources, maybe hesitant to get involved. We might feel inadequate or feel ashamed of our failure and our indifference in the past. We might feel impatient and judgmental of others. And we wrestle with who needs help? Who are the people in need today? And what are we supposed to do about it? Where should our attention go? But I do think most of us recognize that we could do better and we want to do better. I think a good place to start is just with an open posture, open hearts, open minds. And we can sit before God and ask him, how do you want me to do justice, to act justly? And we can listen for how the spirit speaks, who comes to mind, who the spirit puts in our minds, or what situations. And we can ask God for wisdom for courage, for faith to allow him to work in us, and for love for the people around us. 
And we're going to close in prayer. And I invite you just to open your hands in front of you in a posture of openness and asking God to speak to you. You can worship in that posture as well, receiving from God and from the Spirit. So let's pray. God, we are thankful for your love and compassion for us. Even as we think about justice, we have to remember that you have loved us, that you have provided for us, that sometimes we are the people in need of justice and care, and you provide. And we sit before you now and we ask you, what do you want us to do now? Who are the people that need justice in my life? And we ask you for wisdom. Guide us. We ask you for courage. Help us to take steps as you lead us. We ask you to help us to love you and love others better. We know that it's only by your spirit, by your grace, and by your power that we can serve you. So we ask you to lead us. And now we worship you and ask you to continue to speak as we worship. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.